0: Hi there, I'm Pratiba and I'm a public health specialist.
1: And I'm Danny. I know nothing about public health. We started this podcast to help you navigate through the fire hose of information.
0: Our goal at Immunosity is to speak to the concerns people have about COVID-19 and open up the conversation so that everyone can speak up without being shamed for their questions, perspectives, or concerns. <laughs> everyone. Welcome to another episode of Immunosity. This pandemic has been incredibly difficult for everyone. And given that we've mostly put our focus on the physical manifestations of SARS-CoV-2, the mental health aspect of this pandemic has been considered to be a pandemic all on its own, an invisible one. Joining us today to discuss mental health in the era of COVID is Tony Kostecki. Tony is a PhD student in clinical psychology at Texas A&M. Welcome, Tony. We're so thrilled to have you. Oh,
2: thank you both for having me so much. I'm thrilled to be here. My name's Tony. I am a graduate student in clinical psychology. As a graduate student, I wear a lot of different hats. I practice therapy under a licensed professional because I am not licensed currently. But I also do research, and a lot of the research I focus on is actually the intersection of mental health and the workplace. So I deal with a lot of work-family balance, work-life. We call it work-family spillover and how that you kind of bring your work home with you or vice versa. So that's my research. And then clinically, I deal a lot with mood disorders, personality pathology, and even psychotic disorders as well.
1: Amazing. That's so interesting to me. I have a lot a lot of questions about the overlap between uh, work and family balance. But let's start with with an overview question. So what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen in the mental health space since the beginning of the pandemic?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. The thing that comes to mind the most, honestly, is more the logistical aspects of it. So, you know, we have seen the practice of mental health counseling has to adapt in so many ways. For those of us in therapy or counseling, we all know, you know, that we can't go into the office and be with the therapist in person, which is, for a lot of people, that was a pretty big deal, considering that therapy is, you know, such a relational and interpersonal thing. At least, you know, how I practice therapy, it is. So, so when you don't have that direct contact with clients, it's challenging. So we've had to adapt and, you know, maintain that level of interpersonal connection, but over telehealth. So that's sort of been the, probably one of the biggest changes. And then of course, there's all the like insurance stuff and how all that plays into it, which is a whole thing. We also do psychological testing and for a while that wasn't able to get done because that requires a lot of like touching, manipulating objects, ADHD testing, or any type of learning disability. So it's very hard to do that over telehealth. So we've really had to adapt and be flexible. I'm
0: curious about the telehealth aspect just Mm -hmm. from an access perspective, right? So Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of telehealth as an opportunity to perhaps make these services more available to people who might not necessarily be able to take the time to physically go to a particular location. So Mm -hmm. do you think that telehealth is something that is here to stay? And what does this mean for the, the broader side of conducting therapy? Is it just as effective? Are there, you know, additional changes that will have to be taken into account as we move forward with this pandemic? Mm
2: -hmm. Oh, I think it's definitely here to stay. I think it should stay. I mean, I think, like you said, it has allowed, you know, we think of the silver linings of this pandemic. What have we learned? What can we, you know, see as sort of, okay, well, we gained this. This is a success. Telehealth and and the, the successful and appropriate usage of it has definitely been a huge gain for the clinical community, not just for psychology and mental health, but for just medical in general. And so I do think that it should stay. And there's there's certain regulations and rules that apply, and I, I don't know if we'll have time to get into that. There are some, some things that you have, logistical issues that you have to consider and that insurance companies consider, but when it can be done successfully and appropriately, it's very, very useful. If your therapist is, you know, trained in it, it really shouldn't feel entirely different than going into an office and having therapy with your therapist in person. Now, again, there's some, some things there, but, but for the most part, it's, it's still meant to be pretty similar. And again, it's, it's, it's easily accessible if you have Wi-Fi and you know, decent internet, which not everybody does, but there have been in certain communities, especially nearby where I am, there are centers that have been sort of you know, erected. So people can go to these centers and that are not far from their homes and they can have their sessions in private rooms you know, and there's better internet and connectivity there.
1: What have you seen change for patients, what they're going through with mental
2: health? You know, the one thing that just is so omnipotent currently is this isolation aspect of it, right? And especially as we're getting around the holidays and we're social creatures, you know, being sort of Sequestered into your home or wherever you are can be pretty taxing. So I think that a lot of just the isolate what what that isolation brings can be just upsetting. The other thing I wanted to say with that too is that you know beyond COVID, this the last several months we've seen so much sort of collective trauma and. In the past when that's happened, you know, it's we, we have the opportunity to come together and sort of heal and process together, right? But right now, we, we've been limited in our ability to do that. So, so we are isolated to stay safe, but at the same time, that isolation does bring some additional mental health challenges. People are anxious. People are nervous about contracting the virus, about giving it to somebody else. People feel depressed. You know, they might feel that their days are more monotonous because they're just working from home or whatever. It's difficult to plan getaways and fun things because there's restrictions. So people feel like there may be nothing to necessarily look forward to or nothing to kind of break up their, their working life, I guess. And then of course, with, Being in the winter months, I always tell people seasonal affective disorder is a real thing and being trapped inside or, you know, having to stay inside if it's cold out, that can be, you know, pretty upsetting for people. Exacerbate your feelings of SAD, seasonal affective disorder, or just if you have depression, it might exacerbate that a little bit. People get Zoom fatigue. Those are some of the ones that kind of come to the top of my mind. I don't know if you had any sort of questions or thoughts about that because that's sort of what I've observed.
1: I'm wondering, Tony, how that intersects with your your research work, especially Mm -hmm. if you're looking at, for example, the shift of virtual workspaces Mm -hmm. definitely Mm -hmm. complicates the relationship that people have with that work life. Balance. Mm-hmm. Are you mm-hmm. noticing that people are finding it more challenging to set boundaries now that they're working remotely?
2: Yeah. Yes, including myself. It's, it's so I haven't. I have. There's no project that I have actively going on right now. Unfortunately, it's looking at COVID-related work-life balance issues, but I've definitely sort of lot of things. And I would, and things have been published and articles have sort of come out recently that suggests, yeah, I mean, now that we're existing in one environment, home, there's no getting in the car and going to the office or whatever. We're, it's all happening in our house. Or wherever we are, we're at. And so again, there's that monotony of it, number one. But number two, like you said, the boundaries. It's like, okay, well, how? Where can I find work-life balance if I'm working and I'm bringing work into home? So it's super important, based on some of the research I've done in other work-life balance aspects, to to make sure you have to be very intentional about setting your own boundaries with that. So, you know, don't bring your work into your bedroom, keep it at the desk or in the office or your kitchen table, wherever it is that you do work. You know, I, I keep certain doors in my house shut that way. It's like, okay, well, that door, that room is shut right now because I'm out here working. Right. So we have to be really intentional about creating these physical, but also like mental boundaries. Too, that you know during work time we're here in this room and that room's for relaxation and you know for you know sort of just de- de-stressing of, from the day right
1: actually that's really interesting cuz i another question that we wanted to ask you is about some of the coping strategies that you mm-hmm. found the most helpful or that from the research are are being shown to be the most helpful
2: yeah, I think it is on everybody's mind right now. The thing that I cannot emphasize enough is to be active. You know, people, especially again with the winter months, you know, are not getting as much activity, physical activity. And I mean, yeah, we talk about mental health, but physical activity is so important to mental health. And when you're active, you know, whether it's doing some toe touches or I have impromptu dance parties, I will get up and I will just, you know, dance around. Whatever you need to do to get moving, you have to do it because you get that endorphin boost, which actually boosts your mood. Research shows that. So finding safe ways to stay active cannot be more important right now. Your diet and sleep hygiene are also two very important things one thing that i always emphasize with sleep because a lot of people you know do this where they'll bring their laptop into bed or they'll bring their you know files or their you know whatever in the bed i would strongly recommend not doing that because not only again are you violating that boundary but you're also, and it's also kind of unsanitary if, if we really think about it, but you're but you're just bringing that world into where you need to be relaxing and where you need to be decompressing. And you'd be surprised that when you do that, it, it you're sending like sort of some messaging to your your brain and to to you that well, this space isn't, you know, sort of my space. This is, this is for work. This is anything goes in this space, in, the, in bed, my bedroom or in my bed, even. So you can't send that message. You're, you, the message that you should be sending is this is my space for me. Work does not belong here, right? So making sure, again, setting the boundaries, being intentional, maintaining the structure in your day is also very important. So still keeping some type of routine, And then just breathing and checking into your breath of like, how am I breathing right now? Like, where is my breath? We don't realize that so much of the time when we're breathing, we're breathing so high up in our chest it's very shallow. And that tends to just kind of feed into the anxiety loop, right? It makes the anxiety worse. So just checking in to be like, where is my breath right now? And And being more intentional, breathing a little bit deeper and taking some deep breaths and just letting out any tension, any stress that you have, just kind of exhaling it. That helps me slow down. It helps my clients slow down and just become a little bit more grounded too. And then making time to laugh, whatever you need to do, funny videos, talking to friends, find something that kind of makes you, brings you joy, right? Thank you
0: for that. I think all of those those suggestions are really, really helpful. The other thing I would say is also that small steps are okay. I think a lot of people think that I need to stay active. So I need to run this many kilometers a day, or I need to make sure that I get six servings of vegetables. And maybe it's not the best approach because the world is very much a complicated mess right now. And so it's okay to take the small wins and say, today I had an apple and Today, I got out of my chair and walked to the kitchen. I think it's also important to acknowledge to be kinder to yourself as well. Mm -hmm. The other part that I really wanted to talk to you about was the physical Mm -hmm. activity component. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I completely agree with you. It's such a game changer when it comes to changing how you feel about your day, about Mm -hmm. the world. But for me, physical activity also included a lot of socializing before COVID. And that, right now, that's impossible. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you can try to do physical activities by joining Zoom classes and whatnot, but then that adds mm-hmm. to additional screen time. So last yeah. week, my laptop informed me that I was spending 13 hours a day in front of my screen.
2: Oh, wow.
0: So do you have any thoughts for, <laughs> for people like me who are privileged enough to be able to work from home but are spending... Yeah all of their time is in front of the screens because socializing, doing work, watching movies, everything is in front of a screen nowadays.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's no, that's a good point. I mean, I, I get those notifications on my phone too. And I'm just like, well, thanks for telling me, you know, it's like, geez, no, I, I, yeah, I think that for me, I set those boundaries. I mean, the lo- the laptop stays at my, at my little desk that I have here. And I'm very intentional about getting up and, you know, plugging in some music, you know, and just, you know, walking out to the mailbox, taking the long route to the mailbox, or again, having the little dance parties. It may seem silly, but get away from the screen, just kind of come into your, into your little zone and, and take some time. If, if music isn't a thing for you, I always tell people to go on mindful walks where they try to find, I'd call it the five senses activity. So you go through all of your five senses, touch, sight, smell, etc. And as you're walking, you, you tune in to, okay, what am I smelling right now? What am I seeing right now? What am I feeling right now? As you're walking and just make it into a little game and see how it sort of changes. And you don't have to go outside and do it. You could, it could be as you're going up and down your stairs or as you're walking, to the kitchen or, you know, just something to, to keep your mind stimulated as you're sort of engaging in that way. I think that answered your question, but I'm, but please tell me if, if it didn't.
0: <laughs> no, I love the idea of mindful walks and anything to get out of screen time. I had an additional question about the ba- boundaries that you were speaking of earlier. I think for those of us that do have the space to make sure that we have a separate space for work and a separate space for bed, you know, for sleeping and a separate space for eating, that Mm -hmm. makes creating boundaries a lot easier. But what about for those of us that might not necessarily have those options and are eating, sleeping, doing work in a much more enclosed Mm -hmm. space? Do you have any suggestions and practical tips for how to navigate boundaries in that environment.
2: Mm, that's a really good point. I it's reminding me, because I actually I work with prison inmates clinically. And in, in a jail setting, there's boundaries don't exist. What are boundaries? You know, you it's all in one area, right? You sleep, you eat, you exercise, it's all in one sort of area. And it's it's really hard when I'm working with my clients because you know you again you're how how do you you can't go into a different room and one thing that I tell them is it's almost not even so much about the physical aspect of it as much as it is about the intentionality so when you tell yourself I'm going to lie in my bed to take a mind break a brain break and just shut out the world I, I I'm not I don't have the laptop in bed. I don't have, I'm not bringing my phone in here. I don't have, you know, my laptop in here. I'm going in here for me. I'm doing this for me because right now in this moment, I deserve that, right? And so it's about the intentionality of you doing whatever it is that you need to do for you, putting that sort of mental, emotional boundary up. Because yeah, physically, it may not be possible necessarily, but if you set your intention, then it will feel a whole lot different, I bet.
1: That's really good advice. I, so just pivoting a little bit away from the boundaries yeah. and more towards the response to this whole crisis, mm-hmm. how do you think that government agencies are doing at playing the balance between keeping people safe from COVID and that physical aspect and the mental health risk aspect?
2: Yeah, that's a tough, that's a really tough question. I think some agencies and governances are doing better than others. You know, obviously, right now, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. And I I hate using the word desperate. I think I'd prefer to use the word unconventional. Unconventional times call for unconventional measures. And we've seen state and local governances having to really step up and doing some things that a lot of people don't agree with, you know, especially in my home state of Michigan. I don't live there currently, but I'm from Detroit and, you know, big place in my heart. A lot of people have been really struggling with sort of a lot of the restrictions that have happened and they find them unfair. They find them too restrictive, but you know, I always tell people and even as I see clients here and just interact with other people a lot of people you know in Texas where i am now are you know finding the 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 few restrictions that we do have pretty annoying and you know one thing that i remind people is anytime right now because we're in such unconventional times you always have to assess sort of the risk if you do something would you be putting yourself at risk and other people at risk. And when I ask that question, people are like, you know, I really never thought of that, right? What, what risk am I potentially putting myself in or others in? And so framing it like that, to really just help people accept that state and local governances are sort of doing all that they can, you know, to, to keep people safe. And in many cases, it's up to us to just accept that, Not suggesting to be complicit, but to accept that if things do seem too restrictive, there was a chain of decision making that you know led to that. And that included a risk assessment. So if if the risk was deemed to be high, then that's why these measures are in place. And it's important that we really accept them and make the, the the best of them that we can. Right. And I know I'm kind of going around your question a little bit, but I think I just, it seems that some people, it's this balance of am I doing too much and being too restrictive at, at, you know, at what cost, right? But so much of that decision-making has to do with risk and it's different all over the place, it seems. So, yeah, I think it's, I, I think it's, it's some agencies are doing a better job than others, but, you know, it, it's a tough job. It's a really tough job.
1: It sounds like this is a conversation that you're having with clients or even, I imagine, people in your life pretty actively. Mm-hmm. What is what is your response or how do you deal with people who are very clearly violating public health guidelines, but I don't want to say using their mental health as a justification, but <laughs> relying or prioritizing mental health above physical health and you kind of addressed this by talking about, you know, weighing the risk, but what are your thoughts on that and how have you been dealing with it?
2: You know, I, it's, it, is, <laughs> it is something that comes up a lot with clients, actually. And yeah, well, my mental health is more important. And, and again, and I will say we have seen cases, and we'll probably get to this, where, you know, a lot of this isolation has really been so, just so detrimental in so many ways. And you would, could even argue more than, detrimental than actually contracting COVID itself. But again, we're thinking on a very great, a broader level here, I think. You know, I, first and foremost, I don't tell my clients what to do, right? And for me, therapy has always been about, I, I use the metaphor, you know, we're walking down the road in the forest together. You're leading me down the path, but I'm going to hold the light for you. I'm not gonna tell you where to go or what to do or how to deal with this pandemic or you know what, what to do or what not to do when you're going out and all that. But I am going to raise some concerns that I have. Like, hmm, are you putting yourself at great risk by doing this? And then would you be putting mom and dad or grandma and grandpa or whoever at greater risk when you see them a day or two later? So I'm, I'm presenting these things and these issues to them, but I'm not explicitly telling them you know, sort of, well, I wouldn't do that, or I don't think you should do that. It's more so just, again, reminding them and challenging them to think about the possible risks that they may experience themselves or put other people. This is potentially
1: a tricky question, but I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts what role do you think that psychologists have to play in public health messaging? And could we benefit potentially from involving more psychologists and mental health practitioners in public health messaging? Because Prateva and I were actually talking about this last night. I am not a psychologist, but I did my undergraduate in psychology. And I think some of the messages being delivered, the way they're being delivered Is going to create confusion because of just human instinct and and behavior. So I'm wondering if you've given any
2: thought to that. (laughs) It's I I did actually before this this meeting and and just recently too because I'm going to kind of go into a sort of I think a specific area because it's it's so apparent right now. You know, there's so many people, especially with this vaccine. On the horizon, there's groups of people specifically in the black community who feel really unsafe about getting the vaccine right with good reason. Because, you know, there's, there's just been this history of, I see this, you know, with the health officials who, again, are mostly white, if we're going to be real, um, telling these people, oh, it's safe, it's safe, you know, you got to get this vaccine to stay healthy and to stay safe and all this stuff. It's like, this white guy telling me to do this is literally what exactly what I was told not to listen to because of the history in this community, right? And so with, Psychologists, specifically, we're trained first of all to listen, but also to understand and be em- empathetic. Empathy is sort of like a common factor across all modalities of therapy. You have to, you have to be able to put yourself in the shoes of other people, right? You have to, you have to empathize, and specifically in this situation, you have to understand that black individuals, there's there's so much collective trauma that has happened to this community for so long. Of course, they're not going to want to take this vaccine, you know, and so by these people getting on these platforms and telling them that they should be doing this for, you know, their good and the greater good of everybody else, that's not working. There's mixed messaging. And I think there's just sort of this lack of empathy and understanding. So all of that to say, any type of messaging or communication that needs to be had about COVID, about the vaccine, anything, first and foremost, should be a sense of just listening to what people are struggling with, what people are concerned about, but also empathizing with people and why they might be afraid that, okay, well, the vaccine was sort of you know, developed in such a short amount of time and et cetera, et cetera. You know, really being able to empathize and understand the, the fears in, that people are experiencing. So yeah, most people struggle with that <laughs> in case you know, we haven't noticed. It's, it's, empathy can be challenging. Some people it comes naturally to, others it's not so easy.
0: I just wanted to briefly follow up on that. Thinking about the racial inequalities and the way that science has treated minority mm-hmm. groups historically, completely understandable why there are so many more concerns among this group, and yet these groups are the ones that are the most affected because of COVID. They are at the front line, they are our essential workers, they are out there, so it's even more vital that we get messaging right and that we build trust because it's so important to protect them. They are the ones Mm -hmm. most at risk. So any additional thoughts on, I mean, messaging is something that we talk about a lot in public health and something that Danny and I have talked about extensively and the reason behind us wanting to do this. Mm -hmm. There's just so many mixed messaging. Academia and public health as a whole sometimes tends to be quite siloed. So any suggestions or thoughts for how we can do this better?
2: Yeah, and kind of also with back to Danny's, point and just how can like how can we learn from psychologists and I I I think the biggest thing is to just you know if you if you've never really if you don't really know what empathy is and you're in that sort of that sort of stage or in that in that you know in that position of power and you have a platform I think you should definitely you know Really just learn, how can I be empathetic? And there is such a thing as empathy training because I feel like when you have that empathy truly and authentically, your communication is so different. And I just think the the message that you, it just feels more genuine. It feels more authentic. I see it with, with clients. Clients can detect people, not just clients, anybody can detect if you're coming from a place of sort of true and authentic understanding, you know, that, that's conveyed, that's felt. But if you're just, if it's empty and you're just saying it, that's felt too, right? And it doesn't help anything.
0: I completely agree with you. And I think that's something that a lot of scientists struggle with, not the empathy part, but the messaging part. Because if you're relying on statistics and numbers, mm-hmm. how can you mix empathy while also being neutral, right? Part of doing good research is doing it in a neutral, non-biased way. So I think asking scientists to switch hats from being this researcher to then learning how to speak to people, it's, it's a lot, but it's necessary. Mm-hmm. And as this pandemic mm-hmm. has shown us, If we don't learn how to do it, then the consequences are really severe.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: I'd like to pivot a little bit our conversation and and talk about risk. So we've talked about Mm -hmm. risk when it comes to physical risk. You know, if you're an essential worker, you're at higher risk, but are there specific populations that you've seen over the course of this pandemic who are more at risk for experiencing mental health challenges?
2: Mhm. Well, and again I'm I'm going to I'm going to talk a little bit specifically about the black community because they that community has I mean that is all often goes through a lot of trauma, right? And it's 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 incredibly unfortunate, but even during this pandemic we've seen so much trauma in the black community. The sh- the the murders of, you know, unarmed black individuals, right? in literally a span of what, three, four months and, you know, and, and by designated peacekeepers, I mean, in the midst of this pandemic. And so not only are, is this community dealing with again, being you know, more heavily affected by the pandemic, but then you've got this, these other factors that are happening and that are affecting this community. And, and again, as I mentioned earlier, There's with after George Floyd, for example, there wasn't that 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 chance or uh, not chance, but there wasn't as much opportunity for the community and for allies of the community to be getting together to collectively cope and heal with that. You know, we saw the marches, which were great, but like even then, when you're doing these marches, you're still concerned about the about the, you know, the pandemic. Not to mention i 'm just going to point this out as well. many black individuals caught more flack well, you know, if they're so at risk for the pandemic, why are they going out and marching, or why are they which and as we know that that's you know again just more sort of racist and, and biased messaging because we we know why this community should be should be doing that right, but they shouldn't be they shouldn't be admonished or punished for that anyways. So not only was that a physical risk within this community, but it's also been just this emotional and just mental turmoil that these individuals have had to deal with. So I just, I really wanted to highlight that because it's so important and it's absolutely heartbreaking. So, I mean, I, and, you know, just, it's so important for allies and for, you know, people of majority groups to really stand in solidarity with their Black siblings, brothers and sisters, because this community has been just so affected in so many ways. The other thing, though, you know, I do a lot of the research I do actually deals with LGBT, I should say LGB, and then TGNC, so lesbian, gay, bisexual, and then transgender, nonconforming communities, and then sort of how they deal with the work-life balance but, you know, right now with the holidays, especially, but also with being, having to stay put in one space, there, the spaces that these individuals may be in are, are unsafe Ment- mentally, emotionally, maybe they're on a, they're not affirming environments or they're just unsupportive environments. So when you're stuck in that type of environment, as a lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, you know, queer individual, that's incredibly taxing. So again, not only are you, you're trying to protect yourself from this virus, but you're also in some ways putting yourself at some higher risk of mental and emotional abuse. Other people, people who experience domestic violence, that's been a huge thing. We've seen a huge surge in domestic abuse cases. And I can't emphasize enough how important it is for individuals who are experiencing that, whether it's physical and of course, mental and emotional, to make sure that they know about their local resources. The other thing I wanted to point out is people who have opioid abuse issues. This has been another huge thing. And as we know, before the pandemic even started, we had another health crisis happening, the opioid uh, crisis. So we've seen a lot of opioid-related deaths from people during this pandemic. And then healthcare workers help health, the front, people on the front lines. I mean, they have been through so much the last several months. I mean, it is so important for them to, is the best that they can to, to utilize self-care and coping mechanisms, the best that they can. I know they're so busy and they're so strapped, but just taking time to, to heal themselves because, they've seen a lot and they've been through a lot over the last month.
0: I agree. There's only so much resilience, I think, um, that we can expect people to have, particularly because this pandemic has lasted for so long and will last for a couple months longer, if not Mm -hmm. more. I had a couple of comments on some of the things that you said. One was about the African-American community. So there was Mm -hmm. a a study that came out where they looked to see if there was increased transmission after the marches. And the study Mm -hmm. indicated that there was no increased transmission. And so I think this is not me encouraging people to congregate or go, you know, in large crowds, but I think we forget that during those marches, people were for the most part, socially distancing and wearing yeah. masks and you know, washing hands or using hand sanitizers. So that was just a little comment that I wanted to make. The other thing that, I'm, that I think about a lot is, again, comes back to the messaging part. We've been mm-hmm. telling people to stay at home for the last nine months. And I think mm-hmm. we forget a lot of the times that home isn't safe for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So I'm really glad that you brought up all of those populations where home is not the safe and comfort thing that it is for the rest of us. So it is, it is really important to think about our messaging, I think, as public health experts, when we're thinking about how can we navigate the next couple of months of this pandemic? How can we be more inclusive in our messaging as well?
2: That mm-hmm. That is so important. And again, it starts with empathy, making sure that people actually are aware that yeah for for you know a, a queer identifying individual you know at home and and you know it's not is not safe and is not cozy necessarily yeah i
1: think i really appreciate that tony and i think you're right in saying that i feel that many people in public health government and frankly everywhere else could benefit mm-hmm. from empathy mm-hmm. training to so just mm-hmm. be able to put themselves in the shoes of people that they might not know or interact with, I'm wondering what your thoughts are, particularly around well for everyone but particularly around these populations, do mm-hmm. you think that coming out of the pandemic there will be lasting consequences on mental health, and if so, what are your thoughts on what some of these will be?
2: yeah, that's a good question i I just want to i mean first and foremost say I wholeheartedly believe that you know in i wholeheartedly believe in recovery and that you know time heals wounds right and this is a wound this is a, a huge again collective trauma that we're experiencing and i have no doubt that we will be able to to move on and heal from it these groups specifically again it's you know it's in many ways you know we we can't always expect these groups to have so much resiliency because they they're, they've been through so much over time, but I will say, you know, the Black community is such a strong community. The LGBT queer communities, such strong communities. I have no doubt in my mind that they're going to come out of this, and they're just going to be stronger and brighter than ever. I, again, we shouldn't. So the world should not be putting these communities through so much. I mean, that's you know, that's a whole other thing. But I have so much faith in these communities and. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's, I have a lot of faith in them and I think that they will be able to heal. And, and I, I know the world will be able to heal too. And I think it starts with just acceptance that right now we are in this predicament, this very scary, unconventional, I like that word unconventional time. And we have to accept that this is happening and that it's real. And there are people out there who don't accept that. And the more you fight it, the more you fight that acceptance, we call it in therapy, it's called radical acceptance. That's a specific thing within a specific type of therapy, but I love radical acceptance, totally and radically accepting reality. And you just, you have to, because that's, it's reality. You have to accept reality. And when you fight that, it makes your life so much more difficult, right? Right. And if you if you continuously fight it, then yeah, you're you're probably going to come out of this not having. You're you might you probably would would have lost friends, will have lost you know, family members either physically because they died from COVID or they're just you know they just don't appreciate your lack of understanding. So I, I do think that there are some people who who really struggling who are really struggling to accept this reality we're in right now, and they probably will not do so well in this, in this new world. Again, it is a changing and evolving world that, again, is, will probably be changed for a long time because of this pandemic. And fighting it will only exacerbate any mental health issues that you have, right? You have to learn to be adaptive.
0: Tony, on that note, this has been such an incredible and such an important discussion. And so to end our conversation off today, Danny and I love asking this question because it Mm -hmm. ends our our discussion on a positive note. What are you most optimistic about looking forward?
2: For me, and I love this question too, this, again, I think that slowing down everything and has given, because the world has slowed down, let's face it. Things have been slowing down and I think it's given people a chance to look at the world differently, to look at themselves differently, to look at their lives differently. And I know for me personally, it's been, and not everybody's been able to, you know, do this because there are people who are, you know, have not been able to slow down so much. But I think for a lot of people being able to just become more reflective and introspective when this ends. I think we're going to be able to look at each other. Everybody will look at each other in a way with more understanding, more compassion. And we'll know by looking in somebody else's face that I know what you've been through because I went through it too. You know, it's empathy, right? So we just, this there's this shared experience that I think is going to be so powerful. It's happening now, but when this thing is, ending and we're getting back to like a semblance of normalcy I think it's going to feel it's going to be so beautiful just to see that connection between people that was never there before and not to mention I think this has given a lot of people a lot of artists and people who create art more chance and more opportunity to like create just create it's been it's just been a very like creative time I think for so many people. So I'm excited to see what kinds of art and music and all of that will come out from this too because I know there's going to be a lot. That was so beautiful, Tony. Thank you so much. I'm I'm looking forward to that
1: as well. We really, really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. I think you highlighted some really important elements of this pandemic that often get missed when we talk to our scientist guests and that are really, really crucial to our whole experience of, of the
2: last 10 months. So thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate having you. Thanks for having me. I am I'm so humbled to have shared this time with both of you and your audience.
1: Hey there, Danny again. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Stay safe and mask out.